Welcome to CAE Pilot Podcast, a podcast that brings together aviation professionals to discuss life as a pilot, training, and career advice. You can find us at cae.com forward slash CAE Pilot dash podcast or subscribe to our show on your audio podcasting platform of choice. You can also find our video podcast on our YouTube channel. Welcome to the CAE Pilot Podcast. In the past couple of episodes, we've brought you dream pilot jobs, and today we're doing the same. I'm thrilled to welcome Maria Amelie Vioff, who has been a barefoot pilot in the Maldives. Welcome to the podcast, Maria. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. First question, and you know I have to ask it. Maria, a barefoot pilot, is it really barefoot? It's really barefoot. You wouldn't want to do it any other way. Well, I saw the picture of you that you sent us. Um, and let me tell you, it looked pretty phenomenal. You know, getting off the airplane, the beautiful, colorful aircraft, the blue water out of this world. I think in terms of dream jobs, I think that, if it were me, is pretty high on the list. It, it was, yeah, it was dream job and I and 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 yeah it was a dream going there and flying before we get into all the dreamy stuff tell me something how did you get into flying we always ask people like what was your what was the moment that you fell in love with aviation and decided that's what you were going to do I'm not really sure if I can remember because since I was a little girl like when when I was well, before I can even remember, I was out flying with my dad, who has a private pilot license. So he was he was always flying in his free time, and uh, we went flying in small aircraft, Cessnas and Pipers and Chipmunks, and we would go anywhere on weekend uh, vacations to small islands in Denmark, and just on short trips. But uh, I just I think I love I fell in love with flying from before I can remember. So this has been a common trend, I think, that for people, it's either they looked up and they had this dream of flying or it's in their blood. So it sounds mm. for you, it's really in your blood. And when, when did you make the leap from my dream, I'm going to do this and then pursue your training? How did that all come about? It was for me, it was a long journey because I always did this with my dad for fun. So I always thought of flying as being something you would do for fun in your, your, your spare time. So I never considered it as, as flying for money, work, like a, a job, like something you could do as a job. So I never considered it. So I went to high school. I did all, all everything that I was supposed to do. But in the end, I never really knew what I really wanted to do. And then my dad asked me and my mom asked me, what do you really like? What do you really love? And what are you really passionate about? And I'm flying. Then why don't you try that for a living? And then I never thought I could. I, it was like a, a dream job. And I never thought I, it would be a job for me. Um, it seems so surreal. So, um, but then they encouraged me, my mom and my dad, and they supported me. And I, I did it. I tried it, but it took took a couple of years after school for me to figure out and really get the courage to go for it. And, um, and then I, uh, I finally did it. I did a, um, a test, two-day test um, 
just to see if I was even skilled enough to, to um, complete flight school training. And I passed that test and then I knew, okay, I can do it. I think I can do this. I want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your first job after flight school? Well, that's the funny part, because when I finished flight school, there was no flying jobs whatsoever. And I was willing to do anything. I was willing to do uh, fly for free. I was willing to do instructing, uh, flying parachuters, and I, I was willing to do anything, but there was nothing out there. It was, I finished flight school in 2009, and it was just bad timing. So I started working in a kindergarten. kindergarten. Uh, so I was uh, taking care of kids, and then eventually I got the opportunity to work uh, with flight planning and scheduling um, in a company that um, has these private jets. So I started out there uh, with a plan of eventually uh, getting, up, getting a, a job flying for them. But uh, what I really wanted to do from the beginning of my flight training was going to the Maldives and flying there. But that was not an option at the, at the time. Um, but I worked on that. So while I, was, uh, while I was doing that, all the flight planning and flight scheduling, I booked a ticket there to the Maldives to go knock on their door. Oh, so uh, you were motivated. Yeah, I was really motivated. And, I knew and if, I wanted this, if I wanted this, I really had to go, go, go for it. And your perseverance paid off because that's exactly where you ended up. It was, but it was, it was a long journey. It wasn't as easy as, uh, as um, I remember it now, but it, it took a couple of years, yeah. Here you are, you head down to the Maldives, but isn't it a bit unusual for a Danish pilot to head down to the Maldives for a job? Yeah, you would think, but actually the, the, the seaplane uh, company that I um, I was um, I, I visited and uh, that I knew of was started by a Dane. They um, it was a, a couple of Danish investors who went to the Maldives uh, back in the early '90s, and they uh, they went there and they saw they found out that in this paradise people only traveled by boat, and they saw all these islands and all these atolls, and they figured that. There must be an easier and more efficient way of um, bringing people back and forth. And then they came up with this idea of um, making a seaplane company. So it was actually Danes who, who started up the whole thing down there in the Maldives. So, so um, I knew a couple of Danish pilots who'd been there. And in my youth, I used to sail uh, since I was a little girl. And... Um, so I always figured, figured that sailing and flying, if I could combine these two things, that would just be the perfect world. So um, when I heard about seaplane flying and then in the Maldives and that there were Danes there, I, I, I just knew that that was the, my dream job and I had to go for it. Okay, so when you got the news that you had gotten the job, what was your reaction? I was, I don't, I, I kept pinching my arm because I, 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 I couldn't believe it. It had been such a long journey, both it was my first commercial flying job and it was my dream job. So it was the best of both worlds, uh, worlds and I couldn't imagine it. It was, it was crazy. It was, um, I think I called all my friends and I, 
I was I was both scared and thrilled and excited because now I had to pack all my bags and leave Denmark. I never lived abroad before, so it was everything was new. I imagine though that the Maldives is a kind of place where you know the pilots come from just about everywhere, and everybody's sort of in the same boat. And there's a little expat community that supports one another that becomes maybe a second family. Even. There sure is, but I didn't really know of it. I, I went to visit two years before I got the job. So I knew I, I met Canadian pilots, Italian pilots, Danes. I'd met yeah, a lot of European from different countries, pilots and from the United States and Australia. People came from everywhere in the world. And that to me was just super exciting. And um and uh yeah so I knew that Going there, I wouldn't be alone. There was at least an expat community. But, but um, there's also, uh, we also were part of the local life. We also got to be part of the Maldivian lifestyle and uh, got to be, I got a lot of good local friends as well. So it wasn't only expat community. It, it was a mix of, of uh, the local um, society and then, yeah, the expat society. Okay, so we haven't even stepped onto an airplane yet, and it sounds like a dream job. It sounds pretty <laughs> perfect. But um, it is, it was. <laughs> but now you're tell us a little bit about flying. Um, you know, your transition from you know a conventional airplane to a float airplane, flying yeah. in um, you know a, a more I want to say rural, but it's not what I mean in a in a less populated area, small islands. Give us a little bit of an idea of what that's like. When, when I was flying seaplanes, I didn't really think about the differences because I didn't, for me, that was flying. So I didn't think about the difference and differences. But when I sat down and thought about it, there's actually quite a lot of things that were, that's different from, from a wheel planes and the regular airplanes that we know. So some of the, the first things is that we don't have brakes on a seaplane. It's um, we just sail around on the sea like uh, like a boat, and uh, then we take off and land on a moving runway, and uh, that's quite different as well. And uh, taxiing around, there's no nose wheel steering. There's um, yeah, we 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 can only taxi around by well, since the twin otter that I was flying in the Maldives is a, a twin engine you can taxi around by using differential power so that's the way to do it and reverse of course and then the other thing is that we don't pump the our tires with the air we pump the floats uh, free from water because they keep uh, <laughs> taking in a lot of water so that's that's another big difference and uh, another thing as well is that we don't fly ifr we fly uh, daylight only, um, so that's a huge difference as well. And we don't care much about Q and H. <laughs> so, and that's a huge difference because that was a big deal when you learn and when you do your flight training. Q and H is a it's a big big deal, right? You never want to mess that up. In seaplane flying, we don't really care because we take off from the water and you look outside your window, that's where the water is. And then we set the Q&H to match sea level. 
Right. So we always just zero it to to sea level, and then when when we land, we don't care about what the altimeter says. Only when we fly and we cruise along, we care about the altimeter setting, of course. But for takeoff and landing, you you look outside the window and and look at where the water is. <laughs> and so there are um, a few few a few differences, definitely. And around like at what altitude do you typically fly then? Well. Depends because the flights vary in length. So some flights we would only do 500 feet. And are those longer flights, we would go up to 5,000, 6,000. Maybe a few times I went to 8,000 feet, but that was it. It got too cold in 8,000 feet. You don't want to freeze. You don't want to be freezing in the mornings. <laughs> uh -huh. And what about um, how is the airspace controlled, like air traffic control? In the uh, 20, 20 nautical miles within uh, Male, which is the capital of the Maldives, it's controlled airspace. And then outside that, up to a certain altitude, and I don't remember, but that's uncontrolled. So you just fly around and you give information about where you're heading and what altitude you're cruising and, and, and your estimates for the next uh, waypoint or island that you're going to. And where you're landing, is it controlled space in that, you know, is it, is it a set landing, a designated landing area? Like, how do you, when you're approaching, how do you, you have boats, you have snorkelers, parachutists, you have everything going on around you. How do you, that must be just such a challenge in terms of, of uh, approach. Yeah, it's, it's definitely very different from what we know from, from flying to and from runways that are paved and that are the only, the, the only option you have in the Maldives. You have a lot of other options. It depends. Some resorts, um, you land in a lagoon, which is, I, I, I'm going to have a hard time describing a lagoon, but it's like um, it's a pool where you, 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 inside that you've got calm waters and it's uh, usually um, attached to the resort that you're going to. And inside that lagoon, you either have a fixed platform that's connected to a jetty or you have a floating platform. And inside the lagoon, you can take whatever um, direction of landing that you want. So usually that will be into the wind or parallel to the swells. In a lagoon, the water is pretty protected, so you, you usually don't have that many swells, so you just land into the wind. Sometimes in a lagoon, you would have a lot of boats uh, docked, so you would uh, be limited to a, to a direction of taking off and landing, so you'd have to take a crosswind or whatever, but it, it really depends on what resort you, that you're going to. Other times, you would have to be landing in open water, and that means uh, definitely bigger waters in strong winds and um, you would have to struggle with a strong current sometimes as well and there are different considerations and for landing we would usually just go to the resort and then we would overfly the area if uh, we would have to be sure that there are no snorkelers no divers or boats but usually we had like a designated landing area in this lagoon and there would never be snorkelers or divers in that area, specific area. They would have other places to go snorkeling and, and um, diving. And uh, speed boats would never be an issue in that area. Yeah, it was um, yeah, designated to us for taking off and landing. So you don't have more missed approaches than you would in a conventional airplane then? No, 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 definitely not, no. 
And you do have a really good view when you're when you're approaching. And if something were to say a speedboat were so suddenly to cross our path, we would just go around. And, but but because the Maldives is flat, we, it's not a mountainous area, so you would always have a good um, missed approach path. So okay. so it was never really a, a big issue. No. And tell us about a typical day flying in the Maldives. What did that look like? It was busy. We we were really busy. We would um, typically uh, my alarm would be set for four thirty or five uh, a.m. and then I would go take a doni, so I would, either a boat or a bus that would take us to the company. So we'd be ready to check in forty five minutes prior to departure. So that would be the first flight at uh, sunrise. So depending on the time of the year, around six o'clock. And then we would fly all day long until sunset. So that was usually six o'clock. So that was more or less 10 to 12 hours of working a day. How many legs would you do in that time? Oh, that also depended on <laughs> how long legs you were doing. But, but <laughs> I think the most I did in one day was, uh, I think it was... If, if it wasn't 18, then maybe 20, something like that. It was crazy, like 20, 18 lakes or so a day. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, and what, <laughs> what would a typical, what would the time, the longest flight be? One hour. That was the longest. Okay, so it's really yeah. tiny short hops. Wow. And yeah. so here you are, you're the, you see the sunset, <laughs> like you must, you have the best view out of your office window of just about anybody, I would imagine these you know, sunrises you're talking about at 6 a.m. on the water must have been phenomenal. But you're also going in and out of these amazing island resorts. Have you okay. ever had a chance to stay in any of them? We did. And, and we did a lot of times uh, we had to because they had early departures out of the resorts. So in order to get the guests out of the resorts early in the morning, we would have to overnight there. And uh, so boohoo, we had to do that hard part of the, the job to overnight in these luxurious resorts. No, it was, it, it was amazing. It was really great. So, so we did two to three times a week and that wasn't too bad at all. <laughs> okay. So what are the downsides to this? Because so far I'm not hearing any. I'm hearing <laughs> beautiful weather, watching out for snorkelers great resorts. It sounds pretty cool. What would you say were like, just, just make us feel better for sitting here on a rainy day in Canada. What were some of the disadvantages of being there? Let me tell you, there's a lot of guys I've met uh, while I was working there and pilots I met on vacation there who was flying, who were flying um, uh, conventional airliners. They were saying, oh, I always, I, I, I always dreamt about doing this for my retirement job. And I was like, mm, yes, you could, but it's hard work. It's, it's hard work. It's, it's, um, part of the job is also not only to fly the aircraft, you fly in really high temperatures and the air is really humid. So mm -hmm. constantly you're, you're warm and you're working hard. So you're, you're loading the aircraft with luggage as well. You're fueling the aircraft and you are briefing the passengers and you are... Uh, yeah, making sure that, that the passengers are all right as well. So it's, it's a lot of physical uh, work as well. It sounds like more of a private pilot type of scenario than an airline yeah. pilot scenario, for sure. 
I think you can compare it to that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we were talking about your schedule before you would fly 12 hours a day, but what, what about time off, things like that? What was the, what was that like? Uh, when I worked there, it was uh, five days a week. So five days I would fly as much as I could. Um, of course, um, flight limitations, flight time limitations taken into consideration, but as well, but um, five days and then two days off. And they, they were fixed, so we always knew uh, which days we had off, so we could plan on that. And that was really nice. And then I, uh, we had a schedule that was uh, three months on and then one month off. And, and uh, for that month, I could go back to Denmark and do whatever I wanted. It was my off time. So that was the way I, I used to work when I worked wow. there. It sounds yeah. really great. Um, now, you're, you're in this exotic location going in and out of all these great places. You ever fly any celebrities? Yes, I did. And I can't tell you who. <laughs> okay. But I'm sure, I'm sure most people know who, uh, yeah, these and people were. Yeah. Were, were they what you expected? They were. They were. Uh, I don't know what I expected, but I, I didn't. Ex- I don't. I didn't have any expectations because I didn't know until last minute. Um, that's how it works with with uh, flying with famous people. I think. And um, they were just so sweet and so polite, and um, yeah, they just they acted really sweet, and they were a, a joy to have on board. <laughs> they use a silly alias. <laughs> not not that I know of because I didn't get to see the packs list. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the uh, particularities of the Twin Otter is that there's no cockpit door, right? Mm. Um, so you know, passengers are right there with you. From their perspective, I think it's cool. I think whenever we're on an aircraft and I was a flight attendant in a previous life, so I spent a lot of time in the flight deck. It's cool to, it's cool to see. And I think passengers really like it and bring kids up when it was allowed and all that. What's it like doing your job with, you know, your passengers right over your shoulder? Well, I think that's part of the joy flying with passengers is that you can see their reaction. And for, for most of the passengers we brought back and forth, it was their first time on the seaplane. So it was great to see their excitement about flying the seaplane. So that part I really liked. Of course, they also really wanted to take pictures outside the, in the cockpit and through the, the cockpit window because the windows are much bigger, obviously. So, so People got to visit the cockpit and that was fine while cruising. And sometimes people would also want to take pictures standing up while we're approaching and close to landing. But uh, on board the, the Twin Otter, we also have a cabin crew. So they're really good at, at wow. controlling the, the, the passengers. But uh, yeah, they, that, I, I, I actually like the part of the open cockpit. And when I was a flight attendant, we were mandated to bring kids to the flight deck. This was always, obviously <laughs> pre-9-11. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we were allowed to use the jump seat for passengers as well for landing. So oftentimes, mm-hmm. and you're right, the look on their face when they get to experience yeah. this is out of this yeah. world. You want to share that. That's well, the, that's the cool part about flying, taking off and landing, right? Why don't you, I, I really enjoyed sharing that with the, all the passengers. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's so cool. Now I asked you at the beginning, you know, is it really barefoot? And you said it is. How do passengers react to that? 
super surprised and uh, I think a lot of them well some didn't notice others were staring at us and pointing and and uh, is this for real but uh, I think they just thought I was part of the experience and and uh, laughed about it <laughs> well your your uniform is still pretty official right sort of if you if you meet, think that shorts are official <laughs> but, and that but yes, it's navy blue white shirt epaulex it's got that yeah yeah compared to the uniform that i wear now i would still prefer the european <laughs> one but with, without a tie we could button up a few tie uh, buttons and and shorts it's definitely my preferred uniform <laughs> yeah when i went from commercial aviation to the business aviation world i was always surprised because there's some customers whose pilots fly in jeans and t-shirts and wow. it just, there's something that it might make sense but doesn't click because we all have a picture of how a pilot should be dressed and often Absolutely. it's the hat and all of these things yeah. but when you yeah. get out of commercial aviation it changes a little bit which is which is fun to yeah. find out my uniform i don't mind wearing but the tie i could really do without uh, that would be yeah nice too i suspect that after uh covid and everybody wearing their sweats to go to work the days of the tie may be maybe numbered. <laughs> <laughs> i can't imagine ever putting on you a tie again right. yeah, <laughs> right. um we were talking about landing before but in terms of takeoff you know, have you ever, ever been delayed by, you know, pods of dolphins or they're like, what's the code? Um, waves, definitely. There was a limit to how big water we could land and take off in, obviously, because it would just get too rough with the, and the salt water spray. And we would never, with big waves, you would never be able to accelerate a seaplane into to takeoff speed. So, so the waves could be a thing. Another thing was um, tides, high and low tides, and sometimes the tide would be too low for us to land. And yeah, so so, but of course we planned our schedule uh, with that. Um, um, another another challenges was in in the Maldives. Most people think of the Maldives as sunshine and blue sky, and and it just isn't always. It, it's it is most of the year and most of the year it is blue skies and sunshine but there's also the monsoon season that most people don't think of and and it is actually quite a lot of months that we we do have rougher weather and more thunderstorms and and rainy days it wouldn't be i'm from i'm from denmark and in europe we have these gray long rainy days it would never be like that it would be isolated uh, thunderstorms and sea bees coming in and out and and it would be um it would be possible to to just wait we would if if we were flying in uh and let's say we'd landed at a resort and a, and a thunderstorm or cb was approaching we would just wait uh, wait a couple of minutes and then it would have passed and then we would take off and then we would just fly around it. It was never a big thing. And you were talking about um, only being able to fly during daylight. So what were the challenges around that? Uh, well, um, some Which sounds like a stupid we... question. I know like fly during the day and when it gets dark land, I got it, but it must've been an interesting, you must've had some interesting scenarios where you're like, Oh, we better get there soon. There was a few times where we, we, we were like hoping that we would make it and we could just, when we were at the last resort, we just had to, to face it and land and say, that's it, we're not going anywhere. And people would be 
it only happened happened a few times, but but sometimes things happen. And the way we fly in the Maldives is like a bus tour. We would stop at several resorts, so we would leave Male, the capital, and then we would go out, stop at one resort, stop at the next resort, and another. And if delayed uh, delays happen. Uh, we would be delayed, obviously. And then at the end of the day, there would be no more sunshine and right. uh, we would have to stop at, uh, at, at a resort. And I'm sure passengers were like, oh, I'm not going to get to where I want to <laughs> go. I've got to stay here. Oh, bummer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were once filmed for um, Just Planes. And yes. what was it like flying with a camera crew? Well, that's a funny story because just planes, they'd been in the Maldives for, I think, five or six days running around trying to get on an airplane to do some filming, do recording of the flight. But it never happened. And they continuously got bumped off the flight because there were too many passengers and the the load was too heavy. And then I'd... um, I bumped into the to to one of them and and I asked them, well, I, I know how to to um, to work a GoPro, so if I can help you out anyway, I could I could do some filming and 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 I coordinated, of course, with my captain Johan, and he was like, yeah, sure, let's help them out, and uh, we installed the cameras with and and um, got the remote for it, and uh, so we just we just turned it on before takeoff and switched it off just right after landing. So the film crew wasn't on board and they specifically told me we're not going to be filming the first officer, which I was at the time, and we're only going to be focusing on the the captain. So I didn't really think about it. I was just like, yeah, this is another day on the office. And um, eventually when the the film was uploaded on YouTube, I saw that it was it was almost only me in, in the in the camera. So so that was quite a surprise, a, a, a good surprise. I, I guess. So, in some, so what you're saying somewhere. is you, you were cameraman or camera woman yeah, and the start in the, in your own show. That's fantastic. And a pilot just doing my job. <laughs> Three things all at once. <laughs> that's, that's talent. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just did what I was supposed to do. So, yeah. <laughs> what would you say is your most um, memorable? Uh, what's, what's your best memory of flying in the Maldives? Being barefoot, flying around, and good colleague, the white sand, the turquoise water, and yeah, just adventure. It was um, everything: the sun, the 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 weather, and the fun flying. So you know, my crazy question is going to be this: Why <laughs> did you leave? Why did I leave? Yeah, why did I leave? <laughs> I, I... <laughs> well, a lot of uh, a lot of the the the, um, the older guys they kept telling me, remember Maria to get some other experience because you'll just end that up like us being stuck here. And I was like, what's the problem in that? I can't. I don't see any problems. But they kept telling me, get some IFR experience. Just make sure that you see something else than this. And I took their advice. So. Um, it wasn't easy to leave and it wasn't an easy decision, but, uh, but yeah, I, I moved on. <laughs> well, especially given where you ended up, how do you go <laughs> from the Maldives to Greenland of all places where, you know, well, people, people often think, Oh, you know, Greenland is actually white. Like, yeah. it seems like, it seems yeah. like, 
literally the polar opposite, you know? It is. It is the complete opposite. And 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 then again, it, they have a lot of um, things in common, the Maldives and, and Greenland. Um, I, I like adventure and Greenland is adventure too. And I like flying. I like the stick and rudder flying. And uh, Greenland is so beautiful. It's amazing to fly around Greenland and, and watch everything from above. It's, um, it's just be- beautiful. And it's uh, a much, much, much bigger uh, island than the Maldives. So, so we fly longer trips and I, I get to train my IFR skills as well. And then we do fly, it's still, it's still um, turbo um, aircraft. So, so I get to do that still, it's the same. And then we take off and land at very short runways and we do steep approaches. So a lot of things are still the same. Um, just with now I've got wheels instead of floats. And boots, I would imagine. Yeah, and boots. <laughs> <laughs> and a can of goose. <laughs> and yeah, how do you, what was the, uh, did you, did you have a big adaptation period or was it just par for I the did. course? It, it, it took, it took a while. It, it, I struggled a lot in the beginning in the simulator, just not to being able to look outside the window. Cause that's all we learn in the Maldives is look outside the window and use your reference outside the window. And here I had to all of a sudden get back on the instruments and just rely on that and speed tapes and yeah fms and autopilot i was not used to flying with an autopilot i really preferred just flying hands-on and that took a while for me to get used to that now i think i've found the perfect combination of the two i'm i'm not relying um or i'm not i'm not flying 100 on autopilot i do a combination of so I get the best of both worlds, I guess. A little bit of autopilot and, and still a lot of hands-on flying. And what type of aircraft do you fly now? Dash 8. Dash 8. Oh. Yeah. 200s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> those are, I spent a lot of time on those airplanes. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for you? I mean, you seem like a very adventurous person. So, you know, you've done the, is there a middle ground somewhere? Is there, what's on I the horizon? Still really, I, I still now tried that. Well, I really like the, the turbo props, right? But I feel like I should go and try fly some jets. So maybe in the future, I would, I would uh, pursue that. And I feel like I have to try it, right? And, and I think that would be just as cool as an adventure, just in a completely different way, of course. But I do still miss the seaplane flying. I really, I, I, I would consider going back someday when the world gets normal again. Well, we're all looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, Definitely. yeah, yeah. It's not, yeah. Uh, it's a crazy time. There's no question. And speaking of the crazy time, you've told us a little bit about your story about, you know, you didn't have a a direct route into your first flying job. And right now, obviously, the pandemic has a lot of pilots either looking for their next job or we have, um, you know, people in our flight schools right now who are thinking, oh, do I continue with this? Is it the right time? What words of encouragement would you have for, for people who are in that situation right now? Well, I should know because I, I finished flight school at a similar time 
uh, it was it, there was no flying jobs out there. So all I can advise people to do is just keep keep your license current, keep flying, keep looking for the jobs, never give up, and go knock on doors. What I did when I wanted the job in the Maldives, everybody was telling me, "No, there's no way you're going to get there," and they only look for experienced seaplane pilots and. And um, I, I heard that, but I also, I kept believing that, that I had a chance. And so I, I traveled there, bought a, a plane ticket and I went there and I knocked on their door and said, hello, here I am, I'm Maria. And I think you want to hire me. I really want to fly your seaplanes, <laughs> something like that. Not, not exactly, but something like that. And, and um, I can really recommend doing that and not giving up and, and look for anything, look for any kind of flying, look for flight training. That's if you can get an instructor job, that's a really good thing to do. Uh, fly small planes. That really is not a bad thing. That really just, um, yeah, that, that um, gives you better flying skills and gives you more hours in your logbook. So anything you can do or do as I did, to do something that's close to flying and do flight planning, do flight scheduling, or work on a dock in, in, in a lot of seaplane companies, they have dock handlers as, as well, and they, they load the aircrafts, they fuel the aircraft. So you could get a job doing that and you get closer to it and you get to know the right people. And that's a really good way of, of getting your first job. And I think that many people have told us, try and stay in the industry. You never know who you're going to meet that your next job is, uh, is through them. That's right. Yeah. Maria, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I think that you've, inspi- you've certainly inspired me. I need, to, I need to get to the Maldives, if nothing else. I think we'll yes. have to wait a little longer for that, I'm afraid. But listen, it was, it was really great to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. And I'd just like to tell everyone, please go to airside.aero. Lots of great resources for pilots. There's a jobs board. There's the uh, CV builder. Lots of great articles to keep you in shape while you're waiting for your next job in the air. Thanks again, Maria. Thank you. Take care. CAE Pilot Podcast is brought to you by CAE, the global leader in training for the civil aviation, defense and security, and healthcare markets. For more information, check out CAE.com.